The following sermon was delivered at Mount Calvary Presbyterian Church in Roebuck, South Carolina during a joint worship service of the Spartanburg County PCA churches, including Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Now our text this evening brings us to the second half of Matthew chapter 4. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, has come to save his people from their sins, as it says in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we read that he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He received gifts and adoration from wise men. He faced the insane wrath of King Herod. He fled away to Egypt. He grew up then in Nazareth of Galilee upon his return. He underwent baptism at the Jordan River in Judea. And then he took strength from God his Father's blessing stood for anointing by the Holy Spirit, thwarted the devil's schemes in the first half of chapter 4, and enjoyed the ministry of angels. And all of that was preparatory for what we read taking place here in our text this evening. When into man's spiritual desperation, we see Christ Jesus proclaiming salvation through faith in his word and in his word alone. And after Christ launches this Galilean uh, preaching ministry, his tour here in Matthew 4, 12 to 17, he'll go on in subsequent verses and chapters to gather disciples around himself, to instruct them in the way of the kingdom of heaven, which he proclaims here, and then to demonstrate power over sickness and demons and the forces of darkness as he brings healing and exorcisms in his wake. But our passage tonight brings us to this critical juncture in Matthew's gospel where he inaugurates his public ministry, where he includes in that an urgent reminder for each of us here this evening. See, we're gathered, as Pastor Thomas reminded us, from several churches across Spartanburg County. And each of our congregations, in fact, each of our families here represented, and each of our personal experiences present unique troubles and unique triumphs day by day. Unique challenges, but also unique cheers and delights and joys. But do you know what you need tonight? The question facing us, Christ speaks into deep spiritual needs. So we ask, do you know what you need tonight? Whether you're rich or you're poor, you're young or you're old, you're sorrowful or rejoicing, whether you're newly converted or wise, with many years of Christian experience, you desperately need at all times spiritual direction, spiritual nourishment, and spiritual strength from God's Word as it is read and preached this evening, in fact, week by week, in our pulpits across our presbytery and from this church. But what we're all prone to forget is that when gospel ministers step into their pulpits and when they proclaim God's Word, they stand square in the pattern of ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has set for us. So tonight, we will consider this truth from our text this evening, what I've already said. Into your spiritual desperation, Christ Jesus proclaims salvation through faith and repentance and faith in His Word. Into your spiritual desperation, Christ Jesus proclaims salvation through faith. And as we were reminded, and repentance 
but through faith in his word. And we'll look at this under two headings. First, our desperate spiritual condition. And then secondly, Christ's salvation through faith in his word. In the preached word, the message he brings in verse 17. So first, our desperate spiritual condition. And Matthew goes to great lengths to describe this for us, using a lot of geography that I'll hope to explain bit by bit here in verses 12 to 16. And first we see in verse 12 that Christ receives a signal to move into position, to to speak into then our desperate spiritual condition. Look at verse 12 with me. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. The hearing here leads then to the main action of the verse, and that is his withdrawal into Galilee. But lest we be confused, his withdrawal here is not because he's fearful of being taken captive himself. He in fact stays within the, the territory or the domain of the very same ruler who took, um, who took um, John the Baptist into captivity. So rather than fear driving Jesus here, it's actually strategy. He's moving now into Galilee to advance the kingdom of heaven. From the first chapter of John's gospel, we know that this move takes place sometime after Christ's baptism in a period of public ministry in Judea. In fact, John chapter 3, we read about Jesus making disciples along with John the Baptist. But John's capture here is not so much a warning or a threat to Jesus, but a signal that a certain time has come. It's like the green light just went off at the intersection, and he moves ahead. He moves forward to his destination. But, you know, this, this situation here where one faithful minister is taken captive, but another one is set free, so to speak, might cause us to ask the question, was Christ less faithful, less outspoken, less abrasive or, or something than John? Was there some difference in their ministries that led to one being taken captive and the other one being able to move forward? No, not at all. You see, when persecution comes, not all faithful ministers will suffer in the same way or at the same time. And so we don't want to make rash judgments like some have done regarding brothers in Canada, where we see some faithful men suffering greatly for resisting the... Uh, vain edicts and attempts of the government to shut down public worship, and then other men not suffering at all. Now, we mustn't draw any conclusions about the relative faithfulness of Christ here in his ministry. Instead, we see John being handed over in Matthew 4.12, but then Christ ultimately betrayed and handed over in 27.49 and following. Now, at this point... After the incarceration of his servant Herald, that great preacher, John the Baptist, Christ gets his signal then to withdraw to Galilee on what I have called in our sermon title, The King's Errand, to advance the same message that John's been proclaiming for years, but now in a different setting. So what is the chosen setting? What is Christ's chosen battlefield to push back against the kingdom of darkness? We read about it in verses 13 and 14. Look at them with me. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. So though verse 13 opens with three verbs here, really the, the emphasis or the focus is on the location. It's on the geography, these place names that are given to us. And it shows us that John's arrest is the historical marker at which point Christ's plan for ministry begins. 
But Christ's plan was not a reaction to John's situation. Rather, Christ's move to the ancient regions of Zebulun and Naphtali is in fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy to comfort the people of God against the destructive effects of sin and judgment, which first broke out against Israel in this very place. You see, Zebulun and Naphtali were not names used of this location anymore. Antioch Presbyterian Church, this is a very convenient illustration for me, is technically in Woodruff by uh, post office. But if we were to go back even just 50 years, the little town was called Cashville. So only the old-timers use Cashville anymore. Old-timers and Pastor Groff. But everyone else refers to it as Woodruff. And so here it is. Jesus goes to uh, Nazareth and then Capernaum. But it's really ancient Zebulun and Naphtali that he has in mind. His selection of uh, Capernaum by the sea here is also very strategic because from here, within those ancient territories of Zebulun and Naphtali, Capernaum alone is the most convenient access point for all the important travel routes through the area and even to the sea, which I take in this case to be the Mediterranean Sea. So one of the major emphases, though, we, that we cannot miss, that we can't skip over, And considering Zebulun and Naphtali and then what verse 14 says, this was to fulfill. One of the major emphases or themes of Matthew's gospel, it runs all throughout, but particularly in these first few chapters and then again at the end, is that our Savior's life, his earthly ministry, it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Our Savior was a living proof text, if you will, of his own Messiahship to all those who knew the Old Testament and yet still rejected him. In Christ, the hopes of Israel are realized. Yet so many Christians today downplay the importance of the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, let us be students of the whole Word of God for this reason, that we can marvel at the whole Christ of God and every aspect of his beauty and who he is and how he brings everything together, all these disparate threads of Old Testament prophecy and history and shows them in their worth but shows himself in his magnificent glory as the fulfillment of all of these things. And as we do so, let us also pray and labor to present Christ the Messiah to those who know the Old Testament, or at least know of it, and yet reject him, and say that he has no relevance to them or to this ancient text. You know, I have two groups of people in mind. It's the same two groups of people that perhaps Paul the Apostle had in mind. First, those who, uh, who grew up learning Hebrew in, in Hebrew school, who grew up studying the Torah and had bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, and yet don't recognize Jesus to be the Messiah. I'm speaking of our Jewish friends and neighbors, and those as well who occupy uh, um, different communities around the world that have a lot more Jewish people than perhaps we see here in Spartanburg County. But it is a burden. It is to be a burden on our hearts to pray for these very folks who stubbornly resist and reject the Messiah and to ask the Lord to open their hearts that they might then see the connections between the Old Testament and Christ. But then the second group that I have in mind here is I make this plea with you to consider Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament. The second group is in fact 
uh, made up of those friends and family members of ours, our neighbors, and there are many, many in Spartanburg County who grew up in the Christian church, who grew up not going to Hebrew school, but going to Sunday school and heard the stories of Noah and Cain and Abel and Elijah and and David and Elisha and, and all the others, and yet reject the Lord Jesus Christ who see all of those details and stories as so much fluff and, and confusion and don't see how they all come together like the center of a wheel in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps they grew weary or cold or cynical. Perhaps they grew rebellious or hateful against Jesus, our King. Whatever the case may be, brothers and sisters, confront them, yes, Confront them in love, but confront them with the awesome reality that Christ Jesus is bigger than their vain imaginations. He is, in fact, the embodied fulfillment of God's word. To illustrate this, I had a neighbor who lived across the street from me when we first moved to Greenville, and I noticed some Jehovah's Witnesses doing their thing at his house. And so after they left, I went over and said to him, Now, do you know what those folks were saying is a whole lot of hogwash? And he said, oh, really? I mean, they seem to have a lot of answers to a lot of things. I said, yeah, it doesn't make them good answers. Uh, See, I had just moved from Philadelphia. I hadn't picked up on the Southern Graces yet. But but we proceeded then to get into a three-hour conversation about the Old Testament and different things that this man had learned in his Catholic day school and things he had picked up attending another large church in the area, but he had been out of church for years. You see, we live in a very unique part of the country where people have a familiarity with scriptures, but no understanding of how they all fit together. And yet, so many of them are eager to get into conversations. Now, they they probably won't go to church with you the very first Sunday you invite them. But study the scripture yourself. Present yourselves, whether you're ordained or not, approved as a workman with a calling to point people to Christ, even through his word, when it comes up in conversation. You see, he is the fulfillment of what was spoken, not only through Isaiah, but through all the prophets, and even through all the history of the Old Testament. And Christ is all wisdom in life. And Christ is refuge from coming judgment and disaster. And Christ is victory over sin and sorrow. And Christ is nourishment and consolation. And Christ is truth and light. And he has positioned himself strategically through you, believer, to speak into the darkness and despair of those around you. Just as he settled in Capernaum, to speak strategically in that area, that region of Galilee. He has placed himself strategically in you, in your spheres of influence, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, in your families above all. May God grant us urgency then and zeal in declaring his excellencies, not only to one another, as important as that may be, but also to those around us. Now, there's one more detail here in the prophecy itself, the citation in verses 15 and 16, taken from Isaiah chapter 9. Read them with me. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. What Matthew has done here for us is he has brought focus on the opening clause of verse 16. The people who were dwelling in darkness 
have seen a great light. As he's exerted a passage from Isaiah, he's bringing us focus, he's bringing our focus to that particular phrase. You see, verse 15 is a list of geographical descriptions, one piled on after another, all describing or referring to this people who were sitting in darkness. They are the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. They are the way of the sea. They are beyond the Jordan. They are Galilee of the Gentiles. And what this tells us about this people who are sitting in darkness is that Christ could not have chosen a more spiritually deplorable and corrupted mixed Jewish pagan population into which to bring his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Difficulties, challenges, and opportunities then abound in this region into which and from which Christ would advance the kingdom of heaven. If he were a PCA church planter, people would be scandalized that he would choose such a place to plant a church and to begin a ministry. They'd say, what kind of demographics reports were you running? But the most important thing to know about these people, about this particular population, this, this place is the point of focus that, in fact, connects them to you and to me. They are dwelling in darkness. They are dwelling in the land and shadow of death. I'm not referring to Spartanburg County. I'm referring, no, to death's black shadowland. They live and dwell in the kingdom of darkness, we're told here, in a desperate spiritual condition under the oppressive power of evil expressed in spiritual delusion and falsehood. In fact, they dwell in the very same place that you and I are born into, and that is a condition of original sin and rebellion against God. Now, we know from Matthew 2 and 3 that in the gospel, the great adversaries of truth, the, the party of King Herod, the, his religious officials, his scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the like among the people of Israel, that these people were religious formalists, they were legalists, and then they were Hellenists, philosophers, mixing their religion with outside influences. And we know from Matthew 4, 1 to 11, that the devil himself is at work to subvert the coming of the kingdom. He even tries to tempt Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And these people here now, in verses 15 and 16, the people referred to here, they are living under the influence of all of these evil forces this dark spiritual oppression. They sit in their sins without any knowledge of the gospel of salvation. There are no truth tellers among them. And then Christ comes. The light dawns. A light shines on them. Indeed, though they sit in great darkness and under the power of death, Christ, who is himself the power of life and life eternal, breaks in and gives them hope. Each of us are born into that same spiritual darkness apart from Christ and His ministry. Now, we may have been born into poverty or social obscurity or a terrible family, but the greatest problem of all that every human being faces is religious and moral in nature. Alienation, separation from God and His truth and His goodness. 
You and I were born in iniquity. You and I were born in a woeful condition without a hope in the world, which David in Psalm 51 verse 5 describes. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is where the darkness is greatest. Whatever evils exist in the world, that darkness which resides in our hearts when we enter as children of Adam into this fallen world is the greatest darkness there is. But this is where the light shall shine, we're told in Isaiah and then by Matthew. The divine and invincible light of Christ our King, the salvation of Israel, the Savior of sinners, comes into this, our darkness. See, in Isaiah's prophecy, these words come fast on the heels of Isaiah 8, 21 and 22, which present a picture of utter desolation and hopelessness. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. But then the light dawns. And what's the result? Isaiah 9, verses 3 and 4 give us a promise. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. What has changed? In death's black shadowland, in our desperate spiritual condition, the light has dawned and how we have desperately needed it. And we continue to need it today. Our children need it. Our parents need it. Our grandchildren need it. Our neighbors need it. But we're not quite out from under the oppressive weight of darkness. The world around us, it's swimming in a pool of confusion. There's no secret there. There's spiritual declension in every realm of human activity in this country and around the world. But what about you personally? When we turn off the news and we look in the mirror, when we examine ourselves, what do we see? What thoughts run through your mind when the lights go out and you lay your head down to sleep? Do you catch yourself speaking injuriously to your family members and co-workers, to your husbands, to your wives, to your children? Do you feel the weight of indwelling sin and a burden and a sorrow and a depression as you walk around? If so, I have good news for you. It's been breaking out in my sentences. The light has dawned. The light has dawned and his name is King Jesus. This one who settled in Capernaum. This one who comes bearing a message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So having confronted our desperate spiritual condition, now we can consider his message. We can consider what he says for the salvation of the nations. What he says for salvation through faith in his word in verse 17. First he says, repent. Repent. Christ has already been ministering in Judea before John's arrest, according to the Gospel of John chapter 3, as I mentioned. But from this time on, he begins to proclaim the same message that they had now in a new setting. In a sense, he really continues the ministry of John the Baptist in a new region, but the expansion of this ministry is not merely into a new area. He's not merely church planting. See, whereas John the Baptist was an ambassador of King Jesus. Christ himself comes as the king himself. 
And we learn here that preaching is not beneath the dignity of the king. There are a lot of preachers in this room. Uh, One or two are retired. The rest of us aren't so much retired. Some are full-time in their work. Others, like myself, are bivocational. And I want to encourage you, brothers, we should highly esteem this work that we've been called to. See, Jesus esteemed it. He engaged in it himself. And in a sense, there's no higher work that a man can be called to. Are you young men here this evening, as you consider all the different options open to you, of different vocations you can pursue, pray that the Lord would give you guidance, and if it be his will, lead you to be a preacher. Because this is, there is much dignity in this particular calling, in this work. And those of you who aren't called to preach, I want to remind you that the church in its history has been at its strongest and most vital and vibrant when preaching is highly esteemed, gospel preaching, I should say. True gospel preaching is highly esteemed among her members. So week by week, as you sit under your pastor's ministry, prepare yourself to come under the Word. Read what it is he's going to preach or review what he has preached already. Pray for him, but also pray for yourself that the Spirit would be at work in each of you making effectual his ministry. And recognize Christ's voice speaking through your pastor because Christ himself is a preacher, as our text shows us this evening. Now, it's the same exact message that Christ brings. is the same exact message in sum and substance as what John the Baptist brings. It's actually the same words as we saw in Matthew chapter 3. And he says, repent, or better yet, be repenting. This repentance, it, it has two dimensions to it. It regrets past sin, but it also looks forward to and anticipates future pardon and forgiveness by the Lord in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, this is what your life should look like, a life lived in repentance, day by day, repenting unto God. We already recited together the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 87, but it's helpful to remind ourselves again and to rehearse it. It defines repentance as a saving grace, a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin... Turn from it unto God with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. In other words, repentance means rejecting our sinful lusts and the temptations of Satan by completely trusting in God alone. Turning from the darkness of original sin into which we're born, but also our actual transgressions, those those things we do each day which we know are wrong and against God's law, and turning unto Christ, turning unto a life of obedience in the power of Christ and His Spirit. This is no small thing that Christ is calling upon us to do. No, He calls His hearers, including you and me, to a thorough change of heart about sin, a change that is demonstrated in godly sorrow over our sin and humiliation for our sin, paired with sincere confession of sin before God's throne of mercy and grace, fully expecting Him to hear and to respond with pardon and forgiveness. And this life of repentance involves a complete break. There's a lot of confusion over this. 
a complete break with sinful habits, patterns, and in our 21st century as well, identities. You're no longer defined by your sin. You're defined by Jesus Christ. Now what's more, the truly repentant sinner utterly despises, forsakes, and hates all his sin. He's not trying to mine his sin for treasures he can carry with him into the kingdom. No, Jesus says, be repenting. It's an absolute turn. Turn away from that sin. Now such repentance and only such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ, which we also reminded ourselves of this evening being a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Now, in calling sinners to be repenting, Christ was likewise calling upon them to be believing in him. They go together. They always happen together. One doesn't precede the other. They're simultaneous. And so I say to you, if you're here tonight and you're living in persistent and unrepentant sin of heart, affection, speech, behavior, then now is the time. Be repenting. Forsake your sin. And my friend, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will take your burden upon Himself. And what is stopping you from doing that? Now why repent? In case there is any hesitation, Christ gives some reasons. He says, because or for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First, what is this kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven as a phrase describes the condition of men living under the influence and direct rule of God as expressed in his word and as brought powerfully by his spirit. We pray for this in the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer when we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In God's kingdom, men, women, and children are able and willing to know, obey, and submit to God's will in all things as the angels do in heaven. And Christ's earthly ministry ushered in the first advances of the kingdom of heaven on earth. And the kingdom's inbreaking then. This inauguration will give way gloriously to consummate victory only at the return of Christ himself. In his ministry of word and deed, Christ clearly demonstrated the authority of God on earth. And Matthew's gospel is all about Christ's authority to teach and to rule. And it ends on a note of all authority being handed over to him on heaven and on earth as he sends out his disciples. But this right here in Matthew 4.17 is easy to skip over because we've already heard it from John's lips. This verse, this statement is something of a summary. It's a summary that should draw our minds away from heaven and toward, or from earth and toward heaven as we think about what it means to turn from earth unto the kingdom of heaven. And when you hear of the kingdom of heaven, where does your mind go? Do you consider pearly gates and golden streets? Or, or do, you, do you dwell on the glories of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's surrounded by multitudes of angels, ten thousands of ten thousands, and saints made perfect in heaven? Do you consider their perfect obedience of these citizens of heaven in service to the King? Do you consider the joyful and joy-filled delights of such obedience and willing service? And do you ask yourself, Father, what, or do you ask God, Father, 
What does this look like on earth? What is the kingdom of heaven supposed to be? Christ teaches us in the next three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and what kingdom living looks like. And then he continues to flesh out heavenly kingdom living in a world wrecked and wrecked by sin in the rest of the gospel and in his teaching. But simply put, obedience to God looks so unlike the wisdom of this present world. And Jesus makes that point again and again and again. Rather than pride, we are to take the root of humility. And rather than entitlement, we are to put on an attitude of service. And rather than outrage, which is all the rage right now, we are to put on meekness and gentleness and patience and kindness with one another and our neighbors. But also, rather than slothfulness and a life of ease and leisure, we're to put on diligence and hard work, of course, without destroying ourselves. And rather than gratification of the flesh... We are to put on chastity and holiness of life. In other words, kingdom living looks a lot different than the American dream, doesn't it? Rather than gossip and slander and backbiting, we are to put on truth and grace and peace. The kingdom living is incredibly difficult, in fact, impossible on our own. But Christ comes and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean when he says is at hand? This is the last phrase. When he says that this kingdom is at hand, he's announcing something that has been happening, has actually happened, and now persists into the present as a reality or state or condition. The kingdom's been drawing near. It's here now, and it's imminent. It's affecting every aspect of life. It should be on our minds. And the imminent realities of the kingdom are these. Judgment and mercy are about to transpire. What do I mean by that? Mercy for those who repent and call upon Christ in faith, this glorious gift of God's grace. But judgment for those who persist in their rebellion against the king whose kingdom has come. We don't have time to get into the various parables that that Christ will use in Matthew's gospel. But again and again, he implores his hearers, be ready, ready yourselves, for the king is coming and judgment is at hand. So there's urgency in the appeal that Christ makes. And there's urgency in the preaching of faithful gospel ministers week in and week out. And there must be urgency as well in our daily Bible reading when we encounter God's Word for ourselves. Now, you may not always detect urgency when you come before the Word of God or you're seated underneath it, but it's there. It's in the text. It's in the words. You might not always hear urgency in your pastor's voice. You may visit a church where the pastor has a a very relaxed and, and soothing demeanor. And that's okay. We all have our different styles. But the urgency yet is there. Wherever God's word is preached faithfully, wherever it's read with understanding, there's urgency for repentance and reformation of life. If nothing else, it is true that each of us are but a heartbeat, a breath away from eternity. And may it be said of us, as Pastor Thomas said of Mrs. Newman or Newman earlier, that we lived a faithful life with love, evident love for Christ and his church. Not that these things win us access to heaven. 
but because these things are the evidences of having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and received grace from Him, and thus gone forth to live accordingly. In that sense, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is right there. And so whether you've been a Christian for a long time, or you're not a Christian yet, my friend, repent and believe in the gospel. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe on Christ, the Son of God, Savior of sinners, salvation of mankind. For look at what he's done. He has come. And he has come not with a message of woe or judgment, but with a message of urgent pleading and hope into our spiritual desperation. He has come preaching a message of hope. He has come to deliver from sins and oppression. He has come proclaiming salvation through faith in His Word. So let's give heed to this message then. May it color all of our ministries. May we always be preaching and speaking of repentance, no matter how, <laughs> no matter how unpopular it is, and it seems rather unpopular right now, no matter how unpopular it is in our culture and society. For without this message, there's no hope, but there's also no true persecution or, or prosecution of the task at hand. And that is to declare that Christ the King has come, and he's laying claim on the sons of men to give them life and life eternal, to shine his light upon them. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.